0: I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 uh, it's been several weeks actually since the end of November since we have uh, looked at this letter uh, during the course of the fall we were uh, we looked at the first uh, three chapters of of this uh, excited letter but uh, scholars refer to it as a, a sermonic letter in other words it is uh, it was written to a group of people uh, it doesn't have characteristics of a normal letter there's no greeting there's no uh, signature uh, but it was sent as a letter but at the same time the nature of it is, Really, as a, a a sermon that has many, many uh, points uh, with the hope that we have in Christ uh, the th- primary theme uh, woven through that holds everything together. Uh, the passage we look at this morning will be verses one through eleven of Hebrews chapter four. Uh, the uh, Many scholars say that this may be the most complex uh, passage or paragraph in all of Hebrews. Um, It certainly is among the most pregnant, although I I say that almost every week when I come to the different passages here. Uh, There is a very common theme, and the theme itself, as we look at it, will be, uh, I think, easily recognizable. Uh, But because of the complexity of it, we're not gonna work our way verse by verse uh, through this uh, because we would not have time to do that. But since some of the small groups are studying this uh, during the week, they'll answer every question that I choose to neglect today. So uh, your small group leaders, uh, that's on, that's on them uh, this week uh, now, and my phone will be off tomorrow and Tuesday. So for the small group leaders. So, all right. Hebrews chapter four. Hear the word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Father, as we come this morning, we come as those who have been blessed by your provision. Most who have gathered have been blessed in Christ, having received your gift of salvation. But all of us come as those who are in need of being reshaped and renewed. And we pray that you would use this word, even as you have promised to use the word, Uh, to renew our minds, to help us to see ourselves uh, and to hear and to be reminded uh, of your gift of grace and its many expressions. Lord, use that and shape us that we may together and individually be more and more conformed to be like Christ. And in that way, find the joy for which you have created us. Lord, bless this time, and may you be blessed as we give to you our ears, our minds, and our hearts. To you be all glory in your church, we pray through Christ. Amen. On the opening page of his famous Confessions, St. Augustine writes these words that are very familiar to many. You awaken us to delight in your praise, for you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And for over 1,500 years, really pushing, I guess, uh, 1,700 years now, uh, these words have resonated. uh, They've struck a chord within the hearts of Christians uh, in every generation and throughout the world. Because as Christians, we do recognize that ultimately there is no rest, there is no ultimate rest. There's no complete and true rest apart from Christ. But those who have lived a Christian life or just lived any length of time will tell you that there is a a great difference between having experienced in a, in a rest and tasted that rest and then... Experience that rest in an enduring way, living day to day, week to week, year to year, being rested, recognizing that we don't need to, and that we're not expending ourselves to the point that we, we can't function. And so many of us continue to strive, and restlessness is characteristic of our lives, even as it is our generation and our culture. Those who understand that there is a a difference between tasting rest or experiencing rest and enduring in rest are those for whom this portion of the letter was written. This was certainly the case for those who were the original recipients of of this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, They were a people, uh, mostly scholars believe, Jewish uh, believers who had tasted God's grace, having grown up uh, with God's promises and understanding the nature of the covenant. God granted them that they would be able to believe that Jesus was that promised Messiah, they experienced that grace that uh, that brought them into fellowship with God. And they were living their lives for him. Uh, They were growing in their understanding of the word. And for a time they seemed to be sailing along. And yet at the time that they were receiving this letter, They were no longer sailing, but they were trying to navigate uh, stormy seas. They had become the victims of rejection and persecution. Rejection not only from other family members who had not come to believe in Christ, which perhaps had been the case for them all along, uh, but now they had become uh, the objects of of oppression for the official government, government leaders, the culture as a whole. They had turned their eyes on, on, on Christianity and these, this group of people in particular, and now they were experiencing difficulty, hardship, trials in every aspect of, of their lives. And we're told that many of them were beginning to fall astray, and we see a hint of that uh, even throughout this letter. Part of the reason for this letter is to tell them to, to continue on, to encourage them to continue on. But many of the people began to wonder whether or not this, uh, this initial experience of, of this peace and the seema of rest might not have been almost a, a cruel joke, a a, a, a a hoax on them, because while they began with joy and peace and able to rest, now they were experiencing anything but hardship, difficulty, uh, and and pain from a broken and hostile world. And so the writer of the Hebrews is writing to them, it's, it's to hearts that understand what it is to be restless that chapter four is addressed. And the writer is talking uh, about both the entering into the rest, the, the initial experience of it, and the enduring, the living with that sense of rest, day in and day out. And it's not just a message for the first century or the second century. It is a contemporary of a message as we're going to encounter, because all of us are in need of that rest. Writer Dallas Willard says that for those who are in the church, most of us have jumped into the busyness part of the discipleship of being followers of Christ whether serving others, being active and engaged in the church. But that somehow we've missed the idea of rest that is essential for us to accomplish the very things that we are engaged in and and, and busy being involved in. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 tells us that we should not neglect this great salvation. The implication is we should stop and we should think about the different aspects of, 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 that are ours when we belong to, to God, uh, when we have experienced that salvation. And, and many Christians, and certainly it's true for us as a church, we, we spend a, a great deal of time talking about the different aspects of that, the justification, the, the legal declaration that you are no longer guilty because somebody else has paid the penalty. You have been redeemed because somebody has has set you free from the bondage to your sin. The forgiveness aspect that comes with that, the reconciliation, the adoption, becoming children of God, all of the, the glorious aspects of being Christians, followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. That is one writer that I recently read, had written, too many of us neglect another aspect of our salvation, and that is rest. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to hear today. Now, almost immediately, he draws our attention to the Exodus generation. As we look at the opening verses here, you know, therefore, which obviously he's pointing to what came before, general rule, that what therefore, we ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, while promises of entering, this rest still stands. Let us um, fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. Who are the them? And, and he's referring, and we see the evidence of that too, back to the, to the Exodus generation. Good news came to us just as it came to them. They heard a message that didn't benefit them because they were not united in faith uh, for those who listened. And he's drawing our attention to this people that God had called, formed to be themselves, whose roots go all the way back to the covenant that he made with Abraham, the promise that he was going to have a people for himself. And yet this people who was in bondage for 400 years crying out to God, God said, look, I've heard the cries of my people. I've always been aware of them. I've loved my people and then, in a miraculous way, set them free after a series of of plagues, miraculous plagues that he brought upon the Egyptians, set the people free, opened up the Red Sea so the people could pass through, closed it back over on the pursuing army. The provisions and the power of God were on full display for this group of people. And they were on their way to take possession of the promise that God had given all the way back with Abraham, a land, a land that was promised to them, a land where he promised them peace and prosperity. And that's what they're alluding to here because that group of people did not enter in. And this is because they didn't receive it with faith. Many of you know the story. When time came to take the land, Moses sent out spies because part of the plan was, God says, there's a the land that I'm gonna give you. There are people that are living there they need to be driven out. They need to be totally uh, removed from from this place. And so Moses, in a strategic military tactic, he sent spies in to say, okay, let's look at the land, see if the land, what, what's, what's good about the land, what what can we make of the land, and what are gonna be the obstacles? And so the spies went and they came back and you had a majority report and a minority report. The majority report said, "Look, the land is as good as anybody, as you could possibly want." The bad news is there's people there; they're bigger, stronger, and meaner than we are. There's no way whatsoever that we're going to possibly be able to take that land. And the minority report, of, of minority report of two of Joshua and Caleb came back and said, "Look, God said that it's ours. It, it, it you know, we can take this land." And, and the, the words that they use in the report, as you go back and to, and look at that, says these people will be as bread to us. And if you were to translate in contemporary language, they're saying, we can take the land, it's a piece of cake. And it's not because they thought that so greatly of themselves, but they were totally focused on the fact that God had promised the land. See, the majority report that often gets neglected in a lot of the Sunday school lessons and sermons, the majority report was right. These people couldn't take the land. They looked at the people, they were stronger, they were more powerful, had a better military. They were far more capable of defending themselves and keeping their property than the people that the land had been promised to were of taking it. They couldn't take it. But what Joshua and Caleb were focused upon was not their own abilities, but God's promise. And so they looked at the people, and even though they were large and strong and frightening, they were unimpressed because they knew that it was nothing for God. And they said they could take it. They came back with the minority report, but the people, uh, having heard the majority and the minority, they were frightened, and so they said, we're not going in. In fact, the people became so frightened that their hearts were told were hardened. They became hardened against God and and hardened even against Moses because of the report and Moses saying, look, we need to move in. This is what God told us to do. They decided they wanted to impeach Moses because he wasn't leading them the way they wanted to. They wanted another leader. They wanted another God. They wanted another leader. The people had just become hard. And, And so as the passage refers to, God said at that time, In my wrath, which is righteous and just. I said, these people will not enter into my rest, which is, in this case, a a metaphor for the promised land. But it was also a promise that was associated. My rest was the rest that belongs to those who belong to God. And so the Lord here says, they will not enter because they have not done, they have not obeyed, they have not believed, they've not trusted me. And so that Exodus generation in this passage is serving as an example and a warning to the church. The church both were the recipients of this letter of Hebrews, And the churches that's constituted today throughout the world. It's an example of those who forfeited the peace that could be theirs because they didn't believe. And because they didn't believe, they didn't obey. Now, before we move on, it's it's probably important for us to ask this question. What is this peace? What is this rest that, that God is talking about? He says, my rest, because the, the whole passage revolves around, revolves around this idea uh, of rest, and in particular, the, the my rest, uh, the, the rest of God uh, or, or God's rest um, that is promised to the people. And as we look at the passage and, and really all of Scripture, you, you see rest expressed in, in in a variety of ways. I think that there are there are at least four ways that we look at rest in in this particular passage. One is more kind of tangential, and that would be the rest as, as we think about it when you know whenever you go to a memorial service or a funeral and you're talking about somebody who's entered into the rest, the the eternal rest of those who belong to God. And that's kind of tangentially here, but I don't think that's the, the primary focus that is here. He's talking about more of, of a rest even within this life, not a rest that comes at the end of our lives. And so he says, my rest, and one of the examples that they, that they give in this passage is this, is God resting from his work in creation. That the rest that he's promising to his people, those who rest in him, is somewhat akin to the rest that God entered into when he had finished Uh, all of creation, when he looked out at everything that he made and said, it's good, it's all good. And then we're told, and then he he rested on the seventh day, he rested. Now, we need to recognize, and most people, I think, understand this, God didn't rest because seven days, six days of work, he was just tired out. So he decided he was going to, you know, now take a vacation for the next however many millennia. Uh, God wasn't tired in any way, shape, or form. He's omnipotent. He spoke and things came into being. The the scriptures in in Genesis are, are quite clear. It was effortless for God to create the world. And so it wasn't that he was tired. And I think a lot of people get confused also when we hear about God's rest, God resting from his labors as if he's gone into retirement. Because God is still very active and involved in the world that he created, and with the people that he has gathered and redeemed. And so in what sense is it that God has rested from his labors? And and the answer is that he's rested from his labors of creation. He's not making anything new. But it, it goes even more than rested. It's not just, I'm done, but it's, it's, it's a rest as if somebody who has achieved their goal. They've accomplished their course. There is nothing more to be done except for to stop and to take pleasure in what is being, has been accomplished and what's been done. In a human sense, it may be somebody who's run their first marathon and they finished the race, regardless of where they fall in, uh, in the pecking order. But they've been training and training and training, and therefore they have now, once they cross that finish line, there's nothing more for them to do other than to rest. Now there's a need for the physical rest of the body, Uh, but to rest in the fact that they had accomplished what they were doing. God not in any way physically or mentally or emotionally tired, but it says that he he stopped and, and and, and, and enjoyed. There was nothing more for him to do, nothing more for him to accomplish. And so he's rested from that. And so there's a very real sense that for those who are invited into entering God's rest, We recognize that there's nothing more to accomplish. We don't need to be better than we are. It doesn't mean we stop working and that we stop being active. It just means that we we recognize that we have received the object of our desire. The second aspect of of rest that we see here that is my rest is is God's promised land, the land that God had promised to his people, because that's clearly tied here in in reference here in, in this passage. And so we are to take from this, as we do from uh, the Old Testament passages uh, about the, the promised land, that somehow had God's people entered into that land, it was, it was associated with resting and, and resting in God. It was the, the pure fellowship with God, God's presence, God's provision, God's uh, um, uh, empowering uh, of the people. It was the, the enjoyment of, of that fellowship and, and of, of God's abundance. It was literally uh, intended to be a heaven on earth uh, because they would know God and they would receive from God and they would honor God and they would glorify God and they would rest and they would have what they need. Now, it's not that they wouldn't work because they would part of the promise of this land that it would be overflowing with you know milk and honey. It would be agriculturally uh, flourishing. So they would have all their needs simply by... Uh, by laboring uh, in in the fields. Uh, They'd be able to provide for themselves both uh, for their their sustenance and and also for uh, their economic trading with with other other countries. All their needs would be provided. And and so they, they don't need to worry and be anxious about what would happen had they gone and taken this land the way that God had told them to do. And so the promised land, there's an association with that with that fellowship with God and and rest. but ultimately, we see in this passage is the the spiritual rest. It is is really the same rest that Jesus was promising when he said, come to me, all of you who are worn out, tired, or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It, It is that recognition that God is in control, that we can trust him, that we don't need to frantically try to provide for ourselves or to accomplish something to be accepted by God and to make something of ourselves in this world. All of those aspects are in view here, and the church or the the Exodus generation is, is used as an example saying, look, they could have had all of this, but." They didn't get it. They didn't experience it. So they're used as as the example for us. But the primary premise of this whole passage, we see it in verse one, and then repeated several times. While the promise of entering rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, they're telling us this promise was not forfeited just because the first people that it was offered to uh, failed to take it. There is still a promise that is out there that God has given to his people to rest. And he's pointing to them and saying, look, we need to examine our own hearts and examine our own lives, recognize in what ways we are like them and in what ways we should not be like them in order for us to experience the rest that God promises. That's the whole idea behind the fear that he has in, in, in this verse. And over and over, and even in verse 11, as he summarizes the whole thing, he says, let us therefore strive to enter to that rest so that no one may fall short because of some sort of disobedience. So that generation is not just a, a warning to us, but they, they become an example for us. And even in the middle of the passage, we're told this, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they had done in the past. Let us, it's very clear that this passage is inviting us to experience something that every one of us wants. And that yet, what I suspect is so few of us have. And he tells us that there's a reason the reason they didn't experience it and what we need to look at in our own hearts. Because the reason they didn't experience it, we're told, is because they, even though they heard a promise of good news, they didn't receive that promise with faith. And so the writer here is very clear. Just as as we've heard good news, we've heard the good news about the rest that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ, they heard good news. In fact, they heard different expressions of the good news. They heard good news about a land that if they were entered that land, they would be able to experience the rest that certainly after 400 years of slavery uh, would have been very appealing to them. They'd heard good news when God gave them the law because before the law was given, The preface that God made very clear to his people is this. I have already delivered you out of your slavery because you're mine. And then he gives the losses and this is the way that you're to live. So they heard good news that they had already been delivered from their slavery. They had heard good news that they were a people of God's own. Because of their forefather Abraham, they were born into that family. And these were people who had heard the good news that came right after the fall, that God would one day provide the seed of a woman who was going to crush the enemy who brought into the sin and misery into the world in the first place. They had heard the good news. And many of them would have been able to give a credible profession of their belief in that good news if they were to come and need to make that statement in order to join a church. They knew the bullet points. This was the; These were the propositions they had accepted. As many scholars, Bible commentaries are saying, Is and many of them probably were what we would call believers in a sense that they didn't miss out on the eternal rest. What they missed is the potential for the, the promise of rest in, in their day-to-day lives. And the reason was because... Ultimately, they didn't have faith, and the faith, as his word here, is, is trusting, that they were willing to rest in, in the promise of God and the provision of God. They looked at the difficulties that were before them, in this case, the, in the persons of the people who were already inhabiting the land, recognizing that that was a problem that was too great for them to overcome, that if they were to step in to engage that problem, that they felt like they would be swallowed up and overwhelmed. And because they feared the people more than they trusted God, They chose to disobey God's command for them to go and take that land. And so what the writer here is saying, look, the reason they didn't get it is because they heard the message of the good news. But they really didn't trust God enough. They didn't believe God enough to be true to his promise to overcome the obstacles that they perceived in their lives. And then they compounded their problems all the more because in disobedience to God, they brought more difficulties on themselves. Now, for that generation, the Lord didn't do away with them entirely. His in His wrath, He said, "This generation is not going to enter, take possession of this land. They're going to wander for the generation, and the only two that were going to enter in will be Joshua and Caleb, because they were the two that were faithful. They're the ones that believed. They were the ones that trusted God. But He didn't wipe everybody else out. He they wandered for 40 years until the generation had gone, and then they were able to enter the land." The message for you and me this morning is is not just in some moral example, but it is a very real promise that hits us where we live. Because there are many believers in Jesus Christ who ultimately will experience and rest in peace or rest and experience uh, God's rest in heaven, but are incredibly restless in their lives today. And it's experienced through the anxiety and through the worry and through the fear and through the brokenness and through the through the tension and the, you know, uh, and so many other uh, of the um, emotional and psychological maladies that are, are plaguing us as a people. Because we've heard the good news and we believed it for the sake of our salvation that one day we'll be with the Lord. but when we are faced with certain realities of living in this broken world, we think that the promises of God are only for the future and not for the present. And therefore, like the people of that generation, it's tempting for us to try to figure out our own way, the best way of our own devising to, manage our, to navigate through this world rather than simply trusting God and obeying God and living our lives in the way that he has called us to live. And just as it didn't work in that generation, it doesn't work for us either, which is why we have so many difficulties and hardships in our lives. It's not that there would be no hardships in living in the world, but the promise of the scriptures is that there's this peace that is greater than our circumstances, and many of us have tasted that, but we we don't live there because we're far more aware of the world than we are Trusting of the promises of God. We use the phrases around here, the difference between our confessional faith and our our functional faith. In other words, we believe the good news as our doctrinal propositions, and, and we do believe them. But we don't necessarily tap into them day by day and moment by moment. As a result, we forfeit the rest that could be ours. How is it that we can experience this rest? Well, there may be a number of ways, but I want to just touch on a couple of them here this morning. One is that we enter into God's call for us to Well, to live out a a rhythm of grace, a rhythm of rest. Too often discussions regarding the Sabbath get so focused on the restrictions and prohibitions and the permissiveness of this, that, and everything else, and what can I do and what can I not do, and and the the nuances sometimes get mind-numbing. When I was serving a church in Pittsburgh, there was a discussion, a debate, really, with a, within a faction of the church. Some who would be what we call strict Sabbatarians, believing that they, they had to rest from everything except for worship. And, and there are some that are in the strict Sabbatarian camp that actually believe that taking a nap on Sunday is not in accord with God's plan, because taking a nap is resting from our physical labors, it's not resting in God's promises. So therefore, even taking your Sunday nap, much less you know going out and taking a walk or doing... And so they were really rigid about this. Now, this is also Pittsburgh, where every once in a while through a quarter of the year, there's a a team that plays a game. Um, And there are plenty of other people who are not going to give that up. And then there were those who saw themselves as wise, and they were going to navigate this. And I never even heard of this discussion before, uh, but they decided that it was perfectly okay. And one of the people who would want to decide with the strict sabbatarians was also a major Steelers fan. Never missed a game, but he said that he recorded it and would watch it on Monday. Wow, is that all there is? So, you know, the whole issue is resolved there. I, I didn't enter into it, but I just stood there and I was just amazed because they were, they were missing the whole point. That whole, watching that whole thing unfold was, was tiring in itself. But all the discussions about Sabbath seemed to be focused on these things, and we missed the whole point. Jesus says, look, the Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for it. God made it a command that we participate and we keep a Sabbath because he knew that we needed it. He made it for us. But the the day of rest is not bigger than the people. But lost in all the discussions. And the pull of our culture is that God has given us a gift that he says the way that we're wired is that one day in seven, we need to just stop and do something that is restorative and renewing. Chief of which is worship. It's a gift that God has given to us. And when we build our lives around a day of rest, we experience rest rather than being frantic. I don't want you to hear me saying, you know, what you can and you can't do on Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons. I am saying this, is that the, the day of Sabbath, the day of rest, is more than putting in your time in church and then doing whatever you want. It, it is a day that God has given to you to, to rest from labors, and hopefully it's a day that, you know, the Sunday can be that day for you. Some of you do have to work. There's, there's necessary things that have to be done. But as Paul says that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, so it is true for us uh, in, in terms of the way that we, that we live. And so it's vital that we recognize we have this need. Find the day, hopefully it's the Lord's day, that we don't do all of our busy work then. We just kind of rest and enjoy one another and get renewed and and do something that is restorative that will bring God to our attention. And then live our lives in six days. It's amazing how we long for it. And in a warped way in our present culture, Sunday becomes a day of rest for Christians because they say they're so busy they can't go to church anymore because that's the one day they have off. It just, it doesn't make sense because God says, I'll meet you. You'll experience my rest in my presence. And so there's two aspects of this.
1: Number one is, what I'm
0: trying to say is, I, I want you to stop and to think about what is the rhythm of your life? And do you have a rhythm? where you rest one day in seven. And not only rest from your labors, but rest in the promises of God. And so we experience rest when we develop a Sabbath pattern, a rhythm of grace. The second is a spiritual aspect, which is I think primarily what this passage is talking about, because that's what the whole letter is talking about, which is resting in the completed work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask this question of you. Some of you have asked of it in personal conversations at times, just as a point, but without thinking through theologically, how would you answer this? What does God think of you right now? How does God feel about you right now? And the reality is that for most of us, our instinctive response is going to be directly tied to our recent performances. Have I've been pretty good recently. Especially if I can check, I've done, you know, I've, I've so far been faithful reading through the Bible in a year, haven't missed a day, it's, you know. Hey, we've got 16 days into the year. I'm doing good. I'm preaching to the choir literally here because, you know, all sorts of things and people for various reasons, good reasons and maybe not as good reasons, are, are choosing not to participate in church, but you are all here or at least watching. I can say feel pretty good. But if in a road rage yesterday, you just got ticked off and you you know, you know took your car and you rammed up in front of the car in front of you, which I assume didn't actually happen, but that's, you know, you're not going to be quite as confident. Because no matter what our theology says, our instinctive nature says, I am only as beloved by God as I am worthy of being loved. And the whole gospel is to say, no, 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 no. God demonstrates his love in this, that while you were his enemies, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And when he was finished on the cross, he said, it's finished, meaning the work has been completed. And those who believe, who trust, who rest in what Christ has done, not only are you saved and one day you go to heaven, but you will not perfect yourself. It's God who now is at work within you to grow in his grace. It's not that there's no things for us to do, but those are things that will bring us joy, bring God glory. We have already been reconciled. And so many of the reasons that we fail to experience rest, our hearts are so restless because we will not rest in what Christ has done. And even theologically, when we know that we ought to, that we were saved not because of anything we've done, so many of us feel this desire to, okay, I'm going to pay it back. I'm going to deserve what I got, even if I didn't earn it in the first place. And the imagery that writer Jerry Bridges says, it's like being on a performance treadmill. You can go harder and harder and harder, work harder and harder all you want to, and you're going to get nowhere. But those who are willing to say and be amazed at the love of God in Christ, you will experience rest. And I think there's a final aspect that the writer at Hebrews, we talked about before the holidays, it's this. And it's akin to the people in the promised land. It's the recognition that there is within us sin that needs to be put to death, that needs to be driven out of our lives. And until sin is no longer ruling different aspects of our lives, we're going to feel uneasy. You see, in the promised land, the people were told to go drive out all the inhabitants because even the presence of just some would create a problem for the people that would rob them of their rest. And as I've mentioned before, and some of you I know heard because you came up and said, I never thought about that, I need to think about this, which is the best response you could ever give to anything that is new. Because never buy anything I tell you, just check it out with the Scriptures. The Promised Land is not so much a picture of heaven as it is of our sanctification. See, we have entered the rest when we have trusted in Jesus Christ. Just as the people, if they were going to have conquered the land, they would have entered into the land, but then they were to clean everybody out in order to make it their home the way that God had promised. They decided that they would keep some of them because having some slaves or servants would be beneficial to them, but thought that as long as they outnumbered them, they would be in control. And and yet you can look through the Old Testament and see that the whole history of Israel is about corruption. It is about uh, compromise all because of the presence that they compromised with their own sin nature and with disobedience with God. We need to recognize our own lives as already experiencing that rest, and yet we're told to participate in cleaning out, putting our sin to death. Because even a little bit of sin that we allow to stay, because no, it doesn't hurt anything, it might give us a little bit of pleasure, it's a a release, whatever our justification is, it will grow, and it will lead us in the way against what we want. It will lead us away from truly having joy and rest and peace. And the promised land is a picture of God's promises to us. We already have, and so we can taste that rest, but we are at work cleaning up the sin that's within us, taking it to God, confessing it, dying to it, in order that we can ultimately experience as much peace as possible in this life until we experience the fullness of peace. For those who are still skeptical, I'll repeat the primary rationale that I have in saying that the promised land is not a picture of heaven as much as our peace. How many enemies do you plan on having in heaven? How many battles do you think you're going to have to engage in? And the answer is none. And so the promised land, because entering into that promised land involved that, it's a picture of the salvation that we already have, that we're growing in, but it's not yet completed. And so to experience the fullness of rest, we develop a rhythm of rest, we rest in what Christ has already done, and then with the power of the promise of God, we die to the sin that is still lingering within us. These things will give us peace and rest that all of us are in need of. May God give us ears to hear and hearts to receive this message today if you hear God speaking through his word. Don't harden your heart to it. Listen, believe, obey, and find peace and rest. Father, we give thanks to you for this word. And I pray that you would make the simple aspects of this message resonate within us. We would not get caught up with the the forest or what seemed to be the overgrowth, but that we would hear you speaking, reminding us of your promise, and that we would believe. Lord, let us rest in Christ, in whom we find peace and joy and rest. That we might praise you. We might experience all of your promise. This we pray. In the incomparable name of Jesus, amen.